This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. One of the guest bedrooms in uh, my new house was like bright, bright pink. Mm-hmm. Like hot, like really hot pink with girly stickers all over the wall. Not like six-year-old hot pink, like 14-year-old hot pink, if that makes sense. Anyway, we actually are going to be using that room now soon. So we're painting it and it is taking a lot of coats of primer (laughs) to cover up this very eye-burning pink. I retired from painting. You should retire from painting. Just hire somebody to come paint. It's such a, I just hate painting. I really do. My wife doesn't mind it. So like we did, when we moved into our new place, we had professional painters paint like a bunch of rooms in a couple of days, but we left a couple. And the specific agreement was like, if we're not paying somebody to paint this room, it's either never going to get painted <laughs> or you're painting it because I am not, I retired. So it's not so much a question of like the money. It's more that we want to put together a bunch of furniture uh, like tomorrow in that mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. And painting, just it'll be easier if we do the painting before that. This is true. Yep. But we have like a humongous stack of Ikea furniture in there that needs to get put together. So yeah. I've made many trips to Ikea. They still have, they, they have Ikea in Canada. Thank goodness. <laughs> They have Ikea everywhere, man. Have you heard the Jonathan Colton song about Ikea? No. Selling furniture for college kids and divorced men. (laughs) (laughs) It's a reasonable description. Yeah. Anyway, we'll link to that in the show notes. It's a fun song. We sing it when we go to Ikea every time. So I don't know if you saw, but ThoughtBot is an Elixir consultancy now. Like officially? <laughs> I mean, I tweeted it, so. Oh, okay. So I tweeted a thing last week. So, okay, back up. There's been more of us doing Elixir in, in Boston, Raleigh, New York. Like we've, we've gotten a number of Elixir pro- or projects where Elixir is a good fit or people coming to us saying they wanted an Elixir project. So we're doing more and more of that work. We have a couple open source projects. We're blogging a little more about it. And as part of the ThoughtBot.com redesign that was just recently done, if you haven't seen it yet, you should go check it out. The site looks really good. We established a number of landing pages for things we are like actively looking for work in or we get asked to work in. Um, so, you know, we have a Ruby on Rails landing page and stuff like that. And so a couple weeks ago, there was some work put into an Elixir service page, an Elixir Phoenix service page, where we talk about how we've really enjoyed doing enjoyed doing Elixir in Phoenix and... Um, some of the things we think it gives you over doing like a typical Rails project. And in it, there's a pull quote from me where I say like, it's kind of, it's at this point, it's my default choice for a new greenfield application and that I wouldn't use Rails unless I had a good reason to like library support or something like that. Sure. And so I am excited about doing Elixir work and I know a number of people on the team are excited about doing Elixir work. So I just like sent out a tweet with a link to that, a link to that service page and, you know, kind of clickbaity. Also a screenshot of my pull quote. Um, and I, I tweeted that from my personal account, not like ThoughtBot or anything like that. And through a couple different channels now, we've now heard things like, oh, ThoughtBot's not doing Rails projects anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
yeah, so I did that, which is pretty cool uh, that I can just do that with all of my, you know, 900 Twitter followers or something like that. Um, apparently, so th- apparently that's enough to get, for the word to get around. Yeah, it's just weird because a lot of people see a lot of people see things like that as black or white. And like, admittedly, my poll quote makes it a little more black and white than I probably feel it is. But things aren't black. Like, it would be crazy for me to be like, or for ThoughtBot to be like, you know what? We're not doing Rails projects anymore. Like, that's crazy. Like, if you work with tools for a living, like you're a carpenter or something like that, you're not like, uh, uh, you know, I used an impact driver for the first time. I'm done with drills. No more drills. If you call right. me and you want me to do work and all you have is a drill, I'm not using a drill. I'm never going to do it again. Impact drivers only from here on out. Um, you know, like, it's just... And it kind of makes me think of like these posts we see where it's like so and so is leaving Ruby or leaving Node or leaving. It's like I, I, I don't know. Like I'm not notable by any means. And I but when I stopped doing C sharp, I didn't feel the need to tell the world I was done doing C sharp because someday I might be like, hey, uh, that project's really cool. It's written in C sharp. I can contribute to that. Right. Well, and even even if you pick Elixir as your default for Greenfield, it's not like you've left Ruby. No. Not at all. And I still, there are still many, there are still situations like that's a fine choice. You want, if you're doing a greenfield application and you're going to pick Ruby and Rails, that's a fine choice. Like, I'm not saying that's the wrong choice. I'm just saying that's my preferred choice, which works out just fine for me. And like, I'm just some guy that works here. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's another thing I often see like about with like ThoughtBot blog posts or tweets or things like that is like, or things we put in our guides, right? People like ThoughtBot in the developer community has a really strong brand and people associate blog posts and things in the guides with like how everybody at the company feels. And that's not always the case. And I don't think it should have to be the case in order like in order for one of my coworkers to write a blog post where they say they really like working with Ember or something like that. I don't think everybody in the company has to feel like they really like working with Ember. And then the very next week we could have we could have a blog post from somebody else who says like they don't like working with Ember. I think that's fantastic about the blog. Like we can disagree with each other. Like maybe we have to have more of that in order for people not to like anytime somebody who works here says like, uh, like we've had a couple of Elm blog posts and I've heard from people like, oh, you guys are really into Elm, huh? And it's like, well, we have some people who are into Elm trying to get some Elm work. You know, like we or like when we started doing some more and more Haskell, they're like, oh, I've thought bought. They're really into Haskell. And like there are a good number of people here that are really into Haskell. Like there are a hundred people that work here now. If not, right, well, more. that's what I was gonna say. Like at that scale, you're never gonna have consensus on everything, and we probably shouldn't. I think like the the point is like with 100 people, you're very much more likely to be like a and and just at the state of like Thoughtbot's maturity, I guess you're just very much more likely to be like a polyglot company, right? Um, and I think that's where we're heading. But yeah, I just wanted to say we're we're not done with Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have Rails work and you want it to be done. You come talk to me, and I'll convince you to rewrite it in Elixir. <laughs> um, on the other hand, though, it's also I was also struck by how cool it was that like I work in a company where I could just be like very publicly starting to talk about how we want more Elixir work and not have to clear that by anybody or feel like I needed to make sure that was on message with what corporate wanted me to do, right? Like corporate's just Chad, and as long as the developers are happy doing that work. And we don't say things like we're never going to do Ruby again. <laughs> like, right. I think he's totally fine with that. So I love that, you know, I'm empowered to say things like that. The thing that like, yeah, we're, we're like you were saying, like with a larger company, it's harder to get everybody like aligned behind like we're going to write web apps and go now or whatever the case may be. But I think what we are unified by is 
having like really empowered designers and developers that want to make really good software in a no bullshit environment. So like we agree on lots of things technically, but not everything, but the things we do agree on are like typically the way that we go about writing software and doing business. Anyway, that's that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it is a good place to be aligned. Yeah. We're starting to see a lot more at Shopify as well. We're starting to see a lot of like polyglotness is not necessarily the right term because we sort of are, regardless of whether or not we are intentionally trying to move towards SOA at the scale that we're at, SOA happens automatically. Mm -hmm. um, and just as part of that, you're starting to see uh, services written in Go or written in Node or written in, um, we've got one little thing written in Rust. And now we've got uh, the VR team and, and they're all Unity apparently, so C Sharp there. VR, is this VR shopping? Yeah. Interesting. It's, uh, it, it was a thing that like got announced, I think at, at Shopify Unite, we, we showed off some of the stuff that we're trying to do with VR, but the short version is Toby, th our CEO, thinks that VR is going to have a big impact on like general user internet interaction. So we're trying to be at the, uh, at the forefront of it. Yeah, I don't know what to make of any of that yet. I need to double check that I'm not I'm not like imagining this all being public stuff. No, I'm see I just searched for Shopify VR and things articles came up. So Okay, cool. So uh, I'm not okay. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you're leaking anything. But yeah, when when I hear VR, I just think back to like the mid 90s. <laughs> right. And I'm like, ah, I don't I don't think so. Virtual um, boy. Yeah, things like that. I've now twice seen people on the subway wearing like those Samsung gear thing. Is that a thing? The headset. Yeah. I've seen uh, twice people doing that and like looking all around. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like <laughs> stuff like that and stuff like the HTC Vive are just on completely different levels. What is the difference between those two things? So number one's just the range of vision and like the immersiveness just of the headset itself. But then uh, the the Vive is full body VR. Ooh. All right. <laughs> um, so you so like you have little controllers that you hold in each hand and and like they move around the world and that's when you when you see have you ever seen like videos of of uh, people in a little VR office and they photocopy all of the like everything and you can put anything in the photocopier and stuff comes out that's that's one of the demos for the Vive and then because you use your head to move around you can bend over and put your head in the coffee machine and copy of your brain comes out. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like you were saying before I interrupted you about VR, yeah, that sorry. like at at the scale, the nat like service oriented architecture kind of just happens, um, and that's out of necessity. It's like, well, I need this thing. I'm not going to wait for X. I'll just build a way to integrate it into Y, and away you go. And once you're doing service oriented architecture, it's really easy to sell yourself on a decision like, well, you know, a few of us has really been intrigued by this other piece of technology. Um, we'd like to try it out here in this one limited area some small service or something like that. The danger is sometimes those small services become <laughs> integral services and the people who originally wrote it are like, actually, we didn't like that technology. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, guess what? Now you're maintaining this Node app forever. Uh, if you, I hope you like it. Um, but that's kind of the price. And I think that's a, actually a perfect way to shoehorn some new technologies into organizations that are like optimized for doing Ruby or doing Java or whatever the case may be. It's like finding some small service that you can write and like we've we've both talked about being on this being pro monolith before but certainly when you get to a certain scale 
it doesn't make sense and hundreds of developers working on a single project. <laughs> Certainly you're at that scale. Right. Although I think the public stance is still very much like we're pro monolith. We're a okay. monolith company. We're proud of it. Right. And you can still be mostly a monolith, but things like things just happen. Right. Yeah. Um, no. And I think we'll ultimately end up breaking more and more out from our monolith and we'll end up with like the monolithic kernel, but then everything else integrates with it externally. Um, and that has its own problems, like we've <laughs> enumerated yes. on several, several shows. Uh, in yeah, the past. but we're we're six hundred, I think, developers. So I think oh, we're yeah. at the point where where like the technical uh, decisions have almost nothing to do with our with the decisions to SOA or not SOA. Right, it's just an organizational like necessity. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that's been what I've been working on lately. Is uh, I, well. I really actually enjoyed the reaction to the Elixir thing because it meant that like it was reaching a good number of people who were taking it seriously and hopefully it'll lead us to more to more Elixir work and we're trying like what a part of what I or most of what I spent my investment time on on Friday was just trying like little things to build our name in that community like we have a couple of really good open source projects that Paul Smith has been working on um, Ex Machina is like a factory girl type thing for Elixir and Bamboo is an email adapter system for um, Elixir. And both of those projects are really good. So we have like a way to showcase those. We're like making sure ThoughtBot's name and our, our service page on our blog is like associated with those projects. We're going to be writing more blog posts, uh, talking about things on different podcasts. And, and again, it's just really cool because it's like a small core of people in the company that are really excited about it and sense that there's an opportunity and have gotten... Like at every turn when we've been like when we do episodes on Elixir for the bike shed, they're some of our most popular episodes. When we write blog posts about Elixir, people are really excited about them. It's just reached that that stage where people are either really intrigued by it or the people who are doing it are super excited when other people are intrigued by it. Right. Like it's validation. Also, it's a free retweet from Jose Valim, which helps. <laughs> He's not on Twitter anymore. He retweets well, things retweet automatically from sometimes. The, from the Elixir, Elixir fountain. From the Elixir fountain. If you if you hashtag my Elixir status, which I didn't do, I should have hashtagged my Elixir status on my uh, Elixir services page. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, it definitely seems to be gaining uh, a decent bit of traction. I mean, especially among the the Rails community, makes complete sense given that it's a language that is trying to look like Ruby and it's a framework that's. Yeah, I mean, I think that they would that some would argue with that, and I've seen even in the reaction to like uh, the tweet I had, a lot of people saying like people who think that Elixir is like only like a slightly different syntax of Ruby and that Phoenix is Elixir's version of Rails are in for a rude awakening kind of thing. And again, I said look like, not be like. Well, but the, the truth is like they share. There's there's more in common, particularly between Elixir and Phoenix. I feel like there's more in common in use than there is that's different there's more that unites them than divides them sean um and that's i think that's great that's part of why so many of us have been so comfortable and excited about it it's like it's different enough that we get we get some good things like we get better performance out of the box and like a functional approach to things immutability things like that we get out of the box which are nice a little more explicitness out of the framework which i appreciate although it has its own areas of uh you know convention that you just have to kind of know about but it's you know like I said it's familiar and you can get to you can get to work on it. So I don't think I actually think if you're an experienced Rails developer you don't have any problem. You're not going to really cut yourself on any sharp edges for the most part. You can kind of transition pretty easily 
So, and I think that's why it's been so successful here at ThoughtBot, why people have been jumping on board and being like, oh, actually, I'm pretty excited about this. I would work on one of these projects. So, yeah. Um, have you looked at uh, Ecto 2.0, which just came out? I have looked a little at Ecto 2.0. I have looked more at Elixir 1.3. I played with Elixir 1.3. We have a pull you got request. Your, you got your, your date changes in there. Yeah, yeah. So like on this podcast, the first time we talked about Elixir, maybe the second time we talked about Elixir in Phoenix, I had like some gripes and one of them was like dates and times and calendars and things like that where like you often drop down into Erlang and then like interrupting, interrupting between libraries that expected dates in one format and another were a pain in the butt. So now they have actual calendar types in the language. So they have date, date time, naive date time, which is just a date time without a calendar associated to it or a time zone. I think that's all of them. Yeah. Um, and then they've got the little sigils. to. D- I, that's one thing I thought was really cool is that the literals are like basically date.parse at compile time. Yeah. As opposed to like having to write it out date.new way that nobody actually thinks about dates. Right. My original, like when I looked at them, so they have, they, they call it sigils. It's basically just a way to have literals to, to parse into these things. And I was like, oh, there's no way to do a non-naive date time. And I was like, well, how would you, there's really no like standard way. Like they don't have a sigil for non-naive date time. But that, that is actually strange. You would think. But how would you do that? How would you specify like, would uh, you give it a, offset? would you give it a, but time zone offset, there's different time zones that have the same offset. Right, so you still don't know what time zone you're in just by saying minus five GMT. Well, minus five GMT is also in and of itself a time zone. Right, but there are several different time zones that are minus five GMT right now. Right, but the, the like, but minus five is also a time zone. Okay, I like know. minus five is just a valid time zone that does right. not that does but not it might respect not the be, But assignment. it might not be what you expect it to be. Like it might True. not be that might not be U.S. Eastern time, right? True. Um, I think it actually is. But anyway, so I think that's maybe why that's there's no sigil for that. Um, so I was excited about that change. I'm excited about um, XUnit now has describes. So before you would have to write test and then you give it a string. And so you would say like test name of function. And the, like the convention throughout Elixir is to say is anytime you're specifying a function name, like if you have a function called, I don't know, process, you would say process slash two if it takes it. You would, you would provide its, its arity at all times. So you would say like, test and then the string would be like process two does x y and z under this circumstance and now you can say like describe process two and then you can say test it whatever it's a small change but it's pretty nice uh, for expressiveness in your tests and also you cannot nest describes uh, as far as i know so i'm pretty excited about that because it forces you to kind of keep them from getting too crazy and then there's a there's a thing about uh, about libraries can register different test types, but it shows an example of of functionality quick check can provide, but it doesn't show what you would have had to do in one point two. Do you know Do you know what changed there? I have no idea. That part I do okay. not know. Let me pull up the diff so I can. I'm just doing this from memory. So here's sure. the change log. Um, one thing that the top of the change log, just when I was reading through it, that I really like, and I wish we would do this in every language, is they're moving towards having if and case all have their own separate lexical scope. Right. So you can no longer like assign inside of a conditional and then access it outside. You have to return that from the conditional in order to assign it. Right. Or you right. can, it's just deprecated. So you're going to get a bunch of deprecations. Because you can't reassign variables in Elixir, right? Uh, you can. Like you can, can you? say, let me see. I guess it's also a question of whether it's reassigning the variable or um, assigning 
the same binding twice. Right. There's, that's where it gets confusing for me. My, my, my point being, like, in some languages, even if it does create a new lexical scope, if the variable is declared outside that scope, you could still assign it from inside of the conditional because the variable is declared one level up. But right. since you couldn't reassign variables in Elixir, which right. I'm pretty sure is a thing, even if it's just even if you can assign the same name twice, I'm pretty sure that is treated as overriding the original binding, not assigning the same variable. Right. I believe that's true. Yes. Um, as in like if you did that inside of a block, right, it wouldn't be reflected right. outside of the block. Right. And same thing here, which anyway, I, I think it's cool. I like I, I like I like having if and all of the other constructs that go along with it actually follow lexical scoping rules. Yeah. And like the other changes, there's I think we talked to Jose about this when he was on, but um, or maybe we didn't. I don't think we did talk about this, but but the compiling output got a lot smaller. And the reason why that's important is the deprecations and warnings and things like that that were output while you were compiling were mixed in with information about like the files it was compiling. So if you had a really log large project with a lot of dependencies, you would just like you would very easily miss the warnings and deprecations that were being outputted. Output. So now yeah. that compilation is a lot smaller. It's still, you know, it gets streamed in line. Like that output gets streamed in line. It doesn't get like captured and then dumped at the end of your compilation or anything like that, which maybe might be better, I think. But it's a big improvement. Like when I ran it on the app I'm working on, I allowed it to run under 1.3 and then tested it. And we found deprecations that were in our code base <laughs> that <laughs> we were just missing for whatever reason. And some of them are new deprecations. We also found, which leads us to the next thing in the changelog here. They have this thing called mix crossref, mix xref. Is a it's a task, um, and it'll check to make sure that the th the remote functions you're actually calling, you're calling are actually reachable, <laughs> which I assume the compiler was doing before, but turns out is not, and that actually surfaced a bug in our application, like we were calling some module dot some really long specific function name. And we didn't evidently did not have a test for this functionality because we never got any compiler errors. When I upgraded to 1.3, I got a compiler error saying like, um, or an error back from this mix xref saying that that function was either private or did not exist. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I w went down to the function name, hit the C tag command to like jump to it. And I was like, it exists. It's right here in, oh, a different module. And I was like, <laughs> So is it just not trying to compile that since that code was never exercised or wouldn't it? I think, I think that's... Shouldn't that fail to compile? I thought so, but that's like, that's, it says... No, I, yeah, 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 I see, I see the, the entry. It's just... If in your library code you call this module does not exist dot foo, mix xref unreachable will, will be able to find such code and let you know about it. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why it wasn't able to find it before, but there you go. Oh. Uh, it wasn't, and that was a better, that was a big change. So pretty excited about that. Some that a lot of the test stuff is really nice. Like the like I was saying, the describes are nice. The diffs, which have always been pretty good with Elixir when you're just doing a regular assert, got even better uh, with some failures to make them more clear. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's one that I've been wanting to to look at implementing for Rust, like just better diff output for assert EQ. But it's actually just like not an easy thing to generically do. Like yeah. it's, easy, it's easy enough if you're just going to say, like, okay, we'll give better diffing for, like, string and array and hash map or something, and that'll be it. But if you actually want, like, user-defined types to be able to hook into it, and also just if you want to be defined in a truly stat, like, done in a truly static language, you have to come up with a reasonable interface for how you represent the difference between these two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, like, the... 
I was actually surprised when I first started doing Elixir. I was like, oh, okay, it's an X unit. And when I say when I <laughs> X without the E leading in front of it, it's like an X unit test framework. Okay, I, I actually prefer specs. I'm not I'm not gonna like this. And right. the output from the assertions was good enough that I was like, this is better or this is akin to what I get when I use like our specs matchers. You know, it gives me enough information to get what I need out of it. And then just the non-DSL-iness of it. I mean, it's a little bit of a DSL with like their test and then you pass it a string name for the test was nice. And the only thing I really missed was the ability to just like lump a group of tests together under a describe. And so they added that and now like I don't feel the need for anything are specy. And I wonder, that makes me wonder if I were to look back and do, if I were to go back in Ruby and reassess, like, would I just use mini test spec and call it a day? That might be the case, but you know, I don't know. I've got a lot of, uh, I know how, I know the, I know where the bodies are buried with our spec now. So right. probably, probably never go back and change to something else where I have to figure out like, Oh, how do you integrate with this testing thing? It's, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, it's also just, if you, if you focus it just down to like the DSL for for assertions, so our spec expectations, right? Right. Which doesn't have a lot of like or our spec matchers rather. Wait, is that part of expectations? Yeah, our spec expectations. Our spec matchers uh, is a project, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. There's so many parts to it. There's only four. Oh, there's actually not more. many. There's there's core mocks expectations and rails. Oh, okay. So matchers is not its own thing. Okay. I mean, it might be, but... No, um, it's fine. No, it's not. Yeah, it's expectations. But it's, it's no different than, like, in the Java world, right? Hamcrest matchers fell out of the desire to have more descriptive assertions. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, it's Hamcrest matchers is actually kind of our spec expectations for Java. Right. Like, I think our spec tends to get a lot, of, a lot more flack than it deserves, just because there are parts of it that aren't meant to be used in greenfield projects, but people do, and... Yes, that can lead to some nasty code. Any instance? Like any instance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've been really comfortable in X unit, capital E, lowercase x unit versus lowercase x, capital unit. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting, uh, name conflict. Although at least they're, they are of the same type, so that's good. Yeah, and then like you mentioned Ecto 2.0 too. I don't know a ton about it. Like I know that um, it has better support for multiple repositories which we're actually using on our client project. So we have a pull request out right now that upgrades us to Ecto 2.0. So that's, that's going to be useful because we have multiple repositories on that project. It has the async test running. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing that I've been looking through is um, how it's handling transactions inside of tests now. Right. And I think our tests got a little faster. They didn't get a ton faster. Um, right. They got a little faster. So it wasn't like they're... 20, you know, oh, I've got four cores to dedicate and now it's 25% of the time. Um, doesn't work that way. And we weren't able to, there were some tests that we weren't able to make run async. Uh, if you have, like, if there's a mocking library we use. We can't, uh, that's not compatible with doing async tests for whatever reason. I haven't looked into why. Huh. And Paul, I was asking, I was just reviewing this pull request and I was like, well, like I noticed that um, in most of the tests he added like a uh, thing that says async true. And I was like, well, can we just make async true the default. And he was like, well, not all tests. That's where we got in the conversation about the mocking library. And I was like, well, what's the error that gets emitted when this happens? Is that descriptive enough? Because like, can we just make async the default? Because I think I feel like people are going to forget to put async true in their test. Right. And unfortunately, it's not like it's not like something that errors every time. 
Um, it's, you know, you're going to get... <laughs> As tends to be the problem when you right. have concurrency issues. Right. You're going to get like a weird failure on CI and be like, what the hell's going on here? So yeah. uh, we decided to go ahead and leave it, especially since it wasn't like a huge speed up we were seeing. We have probably 400 tests, 500 tests, something like that. And they run counting the time it takes to compile in like 12 seconds or something like that. Um, so there's no need to like, I mean, sure, uh, if you want to make it four seconds, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that I think we're pretty excited about that. And then they got, yeah, it has and belongs to many. Yeah, I haven't really looked at any of that stuff yet. Um, to be honest, like the domain model for the project I'm working on right now is pretty simple. So like, I'm not sure how much of this we are going to use out of the box other than the multiple repository and the other stuff we talked about. But, you know, the stuff looks nice anyway. There's uh, the big change, I guess, is like a change in nomenclature from going like you no longer have models you have schemas right. um getting away from data. that yeah and then like yeah change set dot model is now change set dot data because they want to get away from this idea of a model for whatever reason to say that like i guess what they're trying to say is your persistence layer is just schema like treat this as just your schema if you want to have business models on top of that like abstract another thing maybe right. i guess is that what you would think <laughs> roughly yeah yeah so yeah I don't know. I'm excited about. I'm excited to play with it, but <laughs> to be frank, most of the stuff I'm working on in this project is Ember bugs. <laughs> you know, things things come in and it's like, oh, it's not working. And I I look at it and I'm like, oh, this might be an elixir thing. And I look and I'm like, nope, nope, we're doing the right thing here. But I look, I'm like, yep, uh, it's a bug. It's it's in the it's not an not an Ember bug, but a bug in the Ember application. Right. I mean, that's where te things tend to go when you push all the logic to the client. Right. It's really a problem of managing state. I feel like like. The request response cycle frees you from a lot of that responsibility because you have to rehydrate state constantly from right. the session. And a lot of the bugs we're seeing with Ember, it's like uh, with an Ember application is because that stuff sticks around forever and ever and ever <laughs> until right. you reload the page. So you don't have that fallback, which you could argue that, well, that's just a crutch, but it's a super useful crutch in web development um, to say that you can, only, you can only screw up so badly for one request. <laughs> I mean, you can Incidentally... <laughs> This is also the argument against Turbo Links. Why is that? Because Turbo Links, uh, uh, clicking a link does not cause a full page reload. And right. people tend to write code assuming that clicking links clears state. Yeah, it's fair. I haven't run into any super problems with that other than with other JavaScript libraries. And even that right. was mostly jQuery type things. And there are plugins to help work around that. Right. Um, so that, I don't, that hasn't been as bad for me, especially since it's basically doing a full body swap. For you anyway anyway yeah let's not go into a rant about <laughs> yeah it looks like it looks like a pretty uh, pretty cool release yeah i mean the, the pair of them together i think is exciting because it's you know a lot of stuff that everybody uses that's getting updated all at once right um so that's pretty cool did phoenix have a release with this as well no i don't think so maybe if it did it was a minus minor thing i don't know what the what the next uh i haven't really been tracking their roadmap to see what's up I know there was the the presence thing. What's that? The Phoenix presence was oh, going to yeah, be the yeah. next release. Yeah, so like a lot of a lot of that's true. A lot of what I've heard about Phoenix has been like WebSockets related stuff, which is cool, but not what I'm into it for. Right. It's really it's it's funny because you know we actually had a meeting with this client that we're talking to talk we're working with now about. Um, I've complained before that like even even the admin site, which is mostly just a CRUD table based thing very vanilla is an ember application and we're having conversations with them now about like could we why don't we just do this 
fully on the server side you know like when we have to update admin stuff what if we just rewrite it on the server so that we don't have like this two two places to update everything for the admin it's funny because the reason why we want to do that is just like we want plain vanilla like there's nothing there's nothing exciting about elixir that makes us want that and like we had we did a uh, paul and ian who are also on the project with me did a lunch and learn about server rendered like the advantages of server rendered html and I was like, it's a really interesting place to be in in 2016 where like you don't have to talk about, you're, you don't really have to talk about the advantages of a client framework. You have to talk about like, <laughs> well, let's, let's reinvestigate what the trade-offs are that we're making when we use these server trade, these um, client frameworks. Like, can we like look at what, look at what gets simpler rather than like looking at what you get when you switch to a client framework, look at what gets simpler when you don't do that. Right. Has been really interesting. And that's like... I'm super excited. I'm not super excited, but I'm happy for people who want to use the WebSocket stuff, and maybe someday that will be me, and I'll be super grateful for it to be there. Well, especially for your admin panels. Yeah, you got to know immediately when somebody else, I guess, like, I'm trying to think, like, you could know immediately when somebody else updates a record you're also looking at. Yeah. Sure. You know, for your three concurrent users in an admin interface, that's (laughs) going to be a big thing. Three concurrent users for most admin panels is a stretch, I think. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's probably one. Three users throughout the day, probably. Right. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where we are. I'm excited to that ThoughtBot's now an Elixir consultancy. We no longer do Ruby. <laughs> um, if you have a Ruby project, we definitely don't want to hear about it. <laughs> that's not true. If you have any kind of project, we want to hear about it. Because <laughs> chances are there's somebody in the company that's excited about doing it. Ember, Go, Python, Ruby, I don't know. Any other, any number of things. Obviously, iOS stuff, Android stuff. You know, we just have a lot of people who are really interested in all sorts of different things. It just happens that um, the person with the microphone right now is really into Elixir. <laughs> well, it's cool. Yeah. On the Rails side of things, I, I don't know if you've noticed. You probably haven't. But while we were recording this, we shipped RC2 finally. Oh, nice. But yeah, so final will almost certainly go out in a week. So it'll probably actually be out by the time this goes out. I love when you say that because then when it doesn't go out. <laughs> no, like have. literally when I say when I say this, it, it, this isn't because, oh, and there's X, Y and Z to do. And I know I can get them done in time. This is because I don't anticipate anything coming out. I mean, if, if there's a bug in RC2, it will not come out in a week. Right. Because it is it like we treat release candidates as release candidates. So if there are any uh, or not any bugs, but any um, show stoppers. Yeah. Show stopping bugs and any critical bugs. Uh, we will do an RC3. Right. But RC1 was out for long enough. Right. And it's not like the release of RC2 is going to get so many more people that weren't already testing the RC to test the RC. Right. There was the one thing where somebody added a new feature to RC2 uh, that wasn't in RC1, which... Um, <laughs> Do you care to talk about what the new feature is, or are you going to leave that for people to discover for themselves? It's not even it, no. It's not. It's not. It's not like it's a feature that I particularly care about. It's just that it that's was not an the RC, process, not a beta, right? Well, that's but too bad. it's relatively isolated. Yeah. So basically, it comes down to unless that's that's probably the highest risk thing. Um, beyond that, it's like unless we introduced a bug in our bug fixes, which happens. Which does happen. Or you get more people, or you, like I said, you get more people testing it, which I don't think is going to happen. Like, maybe you'll get a couple more people, but it's not like you're going to get a huge in, in, influx of people being like, oh, RC2. Oh, okay, now I'll test it. Um, I also have an extremely high bar for what I consider show-stopping. Like, accepts and asset attributes for being broken for new apps. 
it'll be fixed in 501. Right. Probably before you get to the point where you need an accept nested attributes for in your new app. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's just like it only affects new applications and there's a workaround. If, there wa- if, it, if it affected existing applications or if there wasn't a workaround, either of those criteria would move it into show-stopping. But right. That makes sense. Anyway. Well, good luck. I hope it ships. I uh, hope uh, Rails 5 final ships. Uh, and I can upgrade. <laughs> Me too. We're only four months late. Ah, whatever. Late for what? We were originally targeting February. I know, but you're not late for anything. Like, nobody... There's no, like, clamoring. There's no... Like people, I'm clamoring. I mean, I, I want these changes because some of them, is, like we've talked about before, the release through the unfortunateness of, of the release process, like some of these changes were certainly applicable much earlier to people on 4.2 and they've had to wait. But I don't see a lot of people being like, oh, forget this. Uh, Rails 5 is taking too long. Uh, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to Phoenix. I'm going Rails to Phoenix. 5, so. <laughs> That's the real reason I've been really into Elixir and Phoenix lately. It's just Rails 5 was taking too long to give me something new to sink my teeth into. This is us. This is just us trying to win you back. back. <laughs> we miss you. Rails five, please come back. Yeah, no, cool. I am. I am gonna finish up my full fleshed out proposal on the revamped release process. Yeah, like in ne- sometime next week, I think. Which once we have the initial discussion internally, I think I'm gonna try and push towards a public discussion around it as well. Yeah, I think is. I think if you if you were to talk to people about new features in Rails 5, like after people start using it, if you were to like, what do you really like about it? And they'd be like, oh, I really like that I can call or, or that I can do these, like I can do these other things. You'd be like, guess what? You could have done that. There's no technical reason that you couldn't have done that six months ago, eight months ago. (laughs) Um, It was just uh, waiting for all this, all the stuff to align. Well, Um, and and being willing to, this is also why there's the necessity of a long-term support release associated with it, because if we release more frequently, like part of the reason that I, that I didn't just pull or out into a gem myself is because it relied on a bunch of refactoring work that I did, which like is difficult to pull out by itself. It just means like stuff like that ships more frequently as well. So that increases the surface area. Basically, it would mean we eliminate point releases unless there's security vulnerabilities. Hmm. Why would it like why couldn't you do five one, five two, five three under this? So we would do five one five two five three. Oh, so you like, mean um, patch patch release, right? Okay, all right. right. Yep. But oh, sorry. What did I say? You said point release. There's still a point yeah, in the five. Sorry, patch release. <laughs> um, uh, yes, there are multiple points there. Uh-huh. <laughs> like we would we would need to eliminate patch releases just because we don't have the enough people to maintain for that many versions backports of bug fixes. Right. That makes sense. So we would have a single long term support release which more or less mirrors the current model, and that will get back uh, get backported bug fixes. But then if you want new features sooner, basically, ideally what this means is that the migration path is easier because you migrate more frequently in smaller increments, but it also means that every minor release ha- is more likely to contain unexpected bugs or issues. And how we go about doing betas will probably impact that as well. Yeah. Um, I would like to do the six-week release train where it's just every six weeks master becomes the new beta but was the beta becomes the new release but i don't think we will actually be able to pull off six weeks so that's why i'm pitching three months yeah Um, and how we do betas with a three-month cycle is a little bit up in the air i'd also like to hear more about and not right now but (laughs) like how you how you would do something like you did with the attributes api which was like a year's worth of work right yeah how would that span over four or five different releases yeah feature gating yeah anyway 
Uh, yeah, that can be a whole another episode. But. <laughs> cool. Well, we eagerly await the public discussion of such a thing. Hopefully it progresses to a public discussion of such a thing. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I don't just immediately get shot down. I think there is a non-trivial chance that it will just get immediately shot down. Yeah, I, I'm also, I think you got probably a 50-50 shot, but... <laughs> I'm a little more optimistic. I, I think it's less than 50-50 of actually happening. Yeah. But I think the chances of it progressing beyond immediately getting shot down, I'm a little more optimistic than 50-50. And I think the argument for it is just like there were lots of great stuff that was in Rails 5 that was ready that people had to wait on for no, for no reason. I mean, there's a ton of other issues I want to address with it as well, just in terms of the pains that we on the team have been feeling over the last, especially over the last four months. All right. Anyway. Okay. Good luck. Let's wrap up. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 69. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have any feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bring, bring. Bring, bring.